Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. On this episode, I spoke with Dr. Jerry Draper Rohde. Jerry is a senior research fellow at the University College of Osteopathy and is an academic clinician. His current roles include working as the head of continual professional development and as a research lecturer at the UCO, as well as running an osteopathic practice in Oxfordshire and delivering BPS courses to MSK clinicians mostly in France. His doctoral research was on the acceptability, feasibility and likely impact of a biopsychosocially informed e-learning programme for osteopaths' attitudes and beliefs in the diagnosis and management of back pain. And Jerry is on the PhD supervisory team for David Hohenhurst-Schmidt, who was my guest on episode two of this podcast, where we talked about MSK practice going remote in light of the COVID pandemic. So Jerry is a friend and colleague of mine at the UCO. Our desks sit opposite each other in the same office. And in between, or sometimes instead of doing work, we have endless chats, often centering around our passion and occasional frustrations, of enhancing students and clinicians' practice to be more BPS-orientated. Jerry, like many of us, came from a strong biomedical manual therapy background, so I was really keen to speak with him about his experience of breaking free from his traditional training and how he perceives his transition and the transition of others towards a BPS approach. And we talked about how he manages the resistance, the obstacles and opportunities to incorporating the BPS framework into our clinical practice. So I really enjoyed talking with Jerry. It was really helpful to have an insight from someone who has successfully made the transition and is now immersed in BPS practice, teaching and research. This episode should be interesting to all MSK clinicians, but especially those who can't break the biomedical chains or perhaps are unsure or anxious about what a BPS future might hold. So I bring you Dr. Jerry draper Rodi. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I invited or wanted to talk to you on the show really because you had a really interesting journey from one of being very kind of musculoskeletal, very mechanical as a manual therapist, as an osteopath. And I was really interested in hearing your journey and your experience to, towards where you are now as a biopsychosocially orientated clinician. So maybe we could just start by you telling the listeners a bit about you, your academic background, your clinical background. So um, I trained in France. I did a six-year full-time uh, training, um, which was, you know, as osteopath, osteopathic training, there was a lot of musculoskeletal techniques, visceral techniques, cranial techniques, and um, which I think was really interesting and quite um, exhaustive or e- intensive, I should say, about the content. And after that, I felt that I needed a bit more knowledge and learning about anatomy. That was really my focus. So I did two degrees in anatomy, which would be the equivalent of probably postgrad diplomas in the UK, in France. Uh, One of them, which was about learning about anatomy, and the second one, which was more around teaching anatomy, how to dissect and how to draw and stuff like that. So I was really into the model of, you know, tissue causing symptoms and learning about anatomy and the mechanical links in the body and and so on. And very early on in my career, I was um, uh, lucky enough to be able to teach. So I started teaching very uh, at an early stage 
Uh, and I think it's quite interesting also the change in my sort of very uh, didactic way of teaching to, you know, how I teach. After a few years, I really enjoyed my clinical work. Uh, so that was most of my, you know, it was probably 80% of my work was clinical in my early career. And, but I wanted a bit more challenge. Uh, at that point, I was living in the UK. So I considered doing a PhD and I looked for possibilities. And that's when I started, uh, I found my professional doctorate and I started it, um, which is around maybe 10 or so years ago, a bit less than 10 years ago. And interestingly, what I wanted to do was to prove how specific we were as manual practitioners or as osteopaths. And, you know, I had these sort of strong beliefs that what I was doing, I was able to really diagnose precisely which ligament or which aspect of a ligament was really involved and how that would impact on their general posture and mechanics and so on. And I think, you know, throughout the, the podcast, the podcast, I think is going to become clear, but I think it's really fantastic how a doctoral journey really challenges your beliefs and, you know, with a bit, with enough sort of psychological flexibility uh, allows you to change, basically. So that's interesting. So you, because so your, your doctor wasn't into proving the effectiveness of osteopathy or, or the reliability and specificity of, of manual therapy. What will emerge is that the, the topic of your doctoral uh, research is really obviously close to my heart. We work together at the UCO, so we're constantly having conversations about, about clinicians' practice, their behavior, their thoughts. And we spend so much of our time, our kind of working time, probably personal time, um, thinking about this stuff, trying to encourage students and other clinicians to to transition some of their um, clinical behavior and thinking to, to a more biosuccess-orientated way. But your doctoral research kind of pretty much looked at that transition. So maybe you could t- tell us about the, your, your doctoral research and the kind of motivation for it? So my work was really into looking at the biopsychosocial management of patients who present to earth with, with non-specific low back pain. Uh, and more specifically, it was about training experienced osteopaths, which was defined as osteopaths who had been in uh, practice for more than 15 years, into learning and understanding the biopsychosocial uh, concept around, you know, assessment management of patients. So for that, we used a mixed methods approach. So there was some sort of uh, quantitative um, analysis, but also which was really uh, interesting, some qualitative work, which was really to try to gather some understanding about the participants' experience in learning about the biopsychosocial um, um, model and also their fears, concerns, or excitements that they had with this uh, model that was, for most of them, extremely new, um, uh, new concept. And we based our work on work that already existed, but at that point, there was uh, most of the work relied on work that had very small sample sizes. So it was a little bit difficult to make a generalization from their work. Or um, one of the problem was the content that was delivered sometimes was not new to the participants. So obviously we couldn't really see any change before and after because we were basically telling them things they already knew. So that was some of the challenges we had to look into how to design some some form of uh, content that is new to the participants, really interesting enough for them to continue taking the course and not stop in the middle, and also that is achievable and usable for them in practice. So we developed an e-learning program, which was around six or eight hours long to take, but um, 
in fact, we saw that most of them took twice as long because most of the content was quite challenging. So they had to review a lot of the content. Um, but that was the intervention we had developed. Um, and we compared uh, with a waiting time, that a waiting period. That was where we compared it to. And the course was was a mixture of some kind of lecture-based material, information, and right. some videos and... So maybe some videos, some case studies, some quizzes. So it was as interactive as any learning can be, uh, just to make it as effective as we could, basically. Um, and uh, and the feedback was amazing. About you know, I expected them to be much more negative because I picked the what I then considered the most challenging participants for a study like that, who had you know strong clinical practice, busy practices, no need to change my practice. You know, I expected those sort of answers. Obviously, there's a sort of uh, recruitment bias. You know, they accepted to join the study, but they didn't know it was about the biopsychosocial model. They only knew it was about low back pain. That was the only recruitment. So, you know, just to try to, yeah, not affect too much. So the, they the were result. surprised that when there weren't videos of technique or manipulation. Yeah, yeah. I don't exactly know what they expected. I didn't check that. And some of them had very strong biomechanical beliefs, and some of them kept their strong biomechanical beliefs at the end. Did you, you, me- so you measure those beliefs? I did, yeah. So we used a couple of tools for that, uh, the PABS and the ABSMP, which are two questionnaires often used to okay. assess attitudes uh, to back pain. And basically on the spectrum from biomechanical to, on the other end, biopsychosocial. And so we measured the before and after in both groups to see if this e-learning helped to change attitudes. And even though it was a... Um, a feasibility study, we can't really look into effectiveness uh, properly, but n- looking at the number of participants we would need in a big trial, we were very close to that. So we can sort of make some sort of assumption about effectiveness. And we can see that it was extremely effective. The effect size was huge. So it was quite interesting to see that, you know, with some training and the content being carefully designed, um, we can affect attitudes, beliefs around back pain mm-hmm. for practitioners who manage, you know, on a daily basis, patients with musculoskeletal symptoms. And so we might get into this a bit more, but I'm going to bring it up now because it seems like a good time to bring it up. In terms of people's attitudes and beliefs changing, we you, we then infer behavior. So we 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 infer that so they're thinking differently about their patients with back pain and the, the focus of their kind of reasoning might be different. And yeah. without, we've had this conversation before, without kind of empirical data, observations, videos, we presume they're still not just kind of manipulating L4 or or focusing on, you know, the, the iliolumbar lumbar ligament or whatever. Yeah, and I guess that's the big challenge currently in this um, uh, research because we have this idea that by changing beliefs or attitudes, we are going to change their behavior and their clinical behavior, which then is going to have an effect on patient outcome. But there there are lots of assumptions in there. If we look at... uh, I'm just going to transgress just for a second. If we look at patients, for example, and the idea of changing patients' beliefs so we can change their behavior, we know that it doesn't really work. We believe that for the last 20 years, we went a lot into pain, neuroscience education, and so on. And in fact, it's not that it's pointless, but we know it has less value, clinical value that we expected. And probably um, developing patient self-efficacy rather than working on their beliefs might be something more Uh, worth doing. And I guess there's a bit of an element of that with practitioners, where if we only change their beliefs and their attitudes, 
they might have an understanding of the biopsychosocial model, but it doesn't really give them tools on how to implement it. And that's where we see lots of, um, you know, if we look at your research, lots of the uh, problems we are having at the moment. Lots of practitioners know about the BPS model, biopsychosocial model, but then they don't really know what to do. So mm. they're a bit stuck. And then we have this sort of status quo, you know, bias where I'm going to keep doing what I know doing because that's the best I can do sort of thing. So I think changing, you know, making sense, making sense of a situation is great for practitioners, but it's really just the beginning of that. And what we did in our uh, studies, we did this qualitative aspect, which was really to gather also some of their reported change of behavior. And we asked them to um, report some recent patients that they managed differently according to them following the course and how it's changed their practice and so on. So again, it's really a, a, a proxy of, you know, mm. behavior change. It's not ideal, but, you know, constraints of doctoral work and so on, that's the best we could do. Yeah. What we are looking into doing at the moment is to continue that research with, um, again, same sort of idea. Um, and we're going to use another method, which is called uh, single case experimental design, which is really to try to measure all of those different aspects. So we're going to measure practitioners' attitudes. We're going to look at uh, patient outcome changes before and after. And then we're going to train those practitioners to the BPS model, and we're going to do the same thing again. And the uh, big advantage of those uh, of that sort of methods is that you don't need a lot of participants like you would need in a randomized controlled trial, which require, you know, a million pounds, uh, which uh, is difficult to access, obviously. <laughs> so uh, SCARED, the sing single case experimental design, is something quite interesting. And we, we've just had uh, funding for that, grant for that. So we should start that around the end of the year. The only SCARED paper I read was JP Kinera's one on CFT cognitive functional therapy. Yeah, grade one. And, but you just get this, you get a huge amount of data for a small, relatively small number of participants. That's right. And I like it because it's, it's, I mean, it's not a qualitative study in any way, but the fact that you've got it's it's really deep. So you know, rather than being quite quite general and quite superficial, like many quantitative studies, you're it's a quantitative study, but you go really deep into the data and you gather, you know, almost moment by moment data on 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 many many different facets. It's exactly that. I'm sure it'd be a great way to see how that kind of change happens or or yeah. how that transition occurs. If it happens and where it happens, if it really has an impact on patient outcomes, because you know currently we we have this big move towards biopsychosocial management, but we have to be honest that you know currently the evidence for clinical effectiveness is not great. It is a tiny bit better, but it's not hugely better. Mm. So, you know, it, it's not like we have, you know, cracked it and we know the answer and we know how, what we should do. I think there's still a huge amount of things we don't know, we don't understand. There's a huge amount of clinical uncertainty. But one of the um, reasons why, you know, it may be logical to go towards a BPS management is that currently, what we are doing is not working. And probably what we're doing is making things worse. If we look on a sort of societal point of view, you know, the data is really, really appalling. Patients are more and more chronic. We spend more and more in healthcare. We spend more and more in research. But nevertheless, the trends just keep going up and up and up. Disability, costs, and so on, you know, days of work and so on. So one of the arguments out there is that we might be doing more harm than good. Mm -hmm. 
which is really difficult, A, to hear as a clinician, because that's not what we signed up for. You know, we wanted to help others. And also, it's difficult to make sense when most of your patients come back and they say, oh, yeah, I'm much, much better. Mm -hmm. I'm great. So, you know, it feels a bit like, well, it's not me. It's them. You know, they're not doing a great job, but if they could do what I'm doing, then, you know, people would feel better. Uh, but unfortunately, when we look at big data, that's not what is happening at all. Ben Dahler's free study where he looked to train GPs up, yes, a pragmatic randomized controlled trial, looking at looking to train them about uh, pain-related fear and being able to kind of intervene into that. And I think his findings were that that it wasn't necessarily clinically effective, but certainly reduced unnecessary care. I think that was it. So less scanning and yeah. less time off work, yeah. that kind of stuff. And I suppose that whilst we kind of await the, the data on whether or not it's more effective, there's growing data that it at least reduces unnecessary or harmful care. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a good argument uh, about um, expenditure, which is really important. But we also have obviously to focus, or not to focus, but to consider patient outcomes because patients come to us for the, the you know, the sort of therapeutic contract is around usually pain or disability. And we need to find a way of really helping with that. And there are currently some, you know, RCTs that are extremely promising around really developing patient self-efficacy and looking at their psychosocial obstacles to recovery. So I think it makes sense to keep looking there, even though currently the evidence is not that strong, because that's where the best evidence is sitting at the moment. We often have discussions, don't we, about clinicians that it's obvious that they're not adopting a biopsychosocial approach and they're, they're talking in ways either on social media or, or in clinics, which kind of make our, our, our hair stands an end, is that the right phrase? In your experience, what's some of the resistance or do you encounter much resistance to clinicians not wanting to engage with, with the more biopsychosocial kind of way of practice? And have you got any thoughts about what that, where that resistance comes from? So um, I guess when I started my doctoral studies, uh, some of the resistance I had was with practitioners who felt that they were extremely holistic already. And as osteopaths, that's something that we say a lot. We are, you know, it's a holistic uh, management of patients, blah, blah, blah. Like I felt I was, you know, before starting my, my doctorate, I would have said I was extremely holistic and more than everyone. You thought, you thought of the ankle and the knee and the hip. That, that's chain, exactly that's... that. Yes, for low back pain, I was working on the ankle, and I truly believe that, you know. And I, so I sympathize greatly with practitioners who feel that, you know, working on the ankle is extremely holistic. But now, you know, um, I find that it's mere biomechanics that has probably no effect at all on back pain, and we are really taking the patient along a different mm. path than the one that is the most likely to lead them to recovery. If I can just pause you there, it just because that is a misconception, isn't it? That clinicians will say, but I am holistic because I consider all of these different anatomical uh, structures and biomechanical mechanisms. And that's their defense. Why isn't that? Why isn't that a holistic or, or biosuccess oriented? Why, isn't, why is that not good enough? Yeah. So I guess there are lots of things there. A, it doesn't mean that you can't do that if you use a biopsychosocial management. It's not because you start using a BPS model that you can't work on an ankle for someone who has low back pain. You know, if it makes sense, if the patient is fearful of using the ankle and that leads them to have back, you know, it, it could make completely complete sense to be doing that. That's fine. I think the, the main problem is more around thinking that working on a body rather than on a person is uh, going to be effective. I think that's where the problem is. And another problem is around you as being the fixer and mm -hmm. looking for structures that are, you know, impaired and you are going to 
you know, do something and you are going to be able yourself to change them, you, you become the treater mm-hmm. and you're not really in partnership with the patient. Um, and I guess another problem is the lack of evidence around those biomechanical changes that would have an impact on pain or postural changes that would have an impact on pain. I mean, you know, most of them have been debunked recently, you know, in the last, what, two, three years uh, around, you know, text neck syndrome, around uh, sway, you know, all these sort of stuff about the curve of the spine and back pain, you know, all these sort of things that, um, or uh, length, length discrepancy, things that, at least for me, was what, you know, in my undergrad training, I had loads of that, mm. you know, checking legs and checking the spine and, you know, how much they bend and stuff like that. And to measure all those things. And now we see that the evidence is really, really mm. clear that it doesn't matter. It doesn't uh, interfere with pain or disability. So I think some of those, um, you know, going back to your question, what are the sort of problems I encountered was around, we already do that. That was a big, big um, uh, aspect. And to me, that really helped me to form uh, a clear idea about what we were doing, which was not exactly the BPS model. And and others, uh, other problems I've had was, uh, it's not uh, osteopathic work, it's more physio, uh, physio work or psychologist, um, which I thought was always fascinating uh, to hear. Um, and the fact that in, in a way people would, there was this sort of very ambivalent view that I am holistic, but I don't really want to go into the psychosocial stuff. Mm. That's not my, you know, scope of practice. That's psychologists. But biomechanics and anatomy, I'm really happy with that, mm. even though they're not anatomists and they're not biomechanists, but they, they are happy with that. But they don't want to go into the sort of more, um, mind-related or spiritual-related aspect of a patient that could have a huge impact to their pain. So I guess uh, it was probably very messy as an answer, but what I'm trying to say is all of those sort of anatomy, biomechanical aspects can still be included in a biopsychosocial management, but that is a tiny part within a much bigger bubble into which we're going to have lots of different aspects mm. regarding patient's behavior, patient's belief, patient's pre- previous experiences, expectations, and so on. So I think you touched on a really good point that there's a, a misconception that uh, from where some resistance might come from is to say, well, that's outside my scope of practice. So anything to do with the mind or kind of mental health, you know, I, I'm a manual physical therapist. I'm, I'm really not skilled in that. But I remember Mary Keith wrote a, a lovely commentary and I, I can't remember that it might be in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy. Going against that argument to say that many of the psychosocial factors that we talk about when talking about the biopsychosocial model in relation to things like back pain they're quite different to kind of psychopathology they might be psychopathology but often it's it's just fear or or it's kind of unhelpful beliefs or altered perceptions of of you know pain or or their body and you don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist to to kind of hammer into those you just have to have an awareness of them and good kind of communication skills yeah, that's correct. And I think that's been agreed and validated by clinical pain psychologists like Tamar Pincus. Uh, she published on that. And also Keith, but not Mario Keith, another Keith, <laughs> a clinical psychologist, um, who they published a paper on, you know, when uh, manual practitioners or uh, musculoskeletal practitioners should refer patients to psychologists. And, you know, according to them, it's a very tiny minority of very um, important psychiatric conditions, which I, I would 
completely agree with that. You know, that these mm. are patients that definitely need some complementary help to our management. But a lot of patients are going to come to us because they have some form of distress. Mm. If you have a bit of back pain and you're happy about that and you think it's going to get better, they're not going to go to a practitioner. They're not going to go and see your GP, their GP or whoever. They come to you because they are fearful of something. They they expect that something is not going to get quite right. They're not going to be able to do X, Y, Z, or in the future it's going to happen, whatever. And that's this worry that drives mm. them to come to you and if you're in private practice, to pay to see you. Uh, and I think if we don't gather that sort of, you know, uh, background information, what is their main fear about them coming yeah. to us? Then we're missing the point. And then we start talking about the ankle and it's a little bit alien to them because they came for the back pain and they worry about, you know, not being able to go to their daughter's wedding in two weeks time. And we're not really, you know, answering to that question, I guess. And patients' expectations and beliefs are also on a kind of population level, are are kind of largely biomedically situated. Patients themselves have biomedical beliefs. And so thinking about resistance to, to change, in a way, the, the market demand for biomechanical, biomedical treatment is there. So if patients are wanting biomedical, biomechanical treatments, they want scans, they want uh, intervention, there are many therapists who, who will be happy to oblige and that, that suits their beliefs. So they then deliver the care that they think their patient is looking for. That's right. And what is very difficult is also if you take the more um, chronic or risk of chronicity patients and you deliver them a very strong biopsychosocial uh, message and management, if you have really a tiny biomechanical thing in your message, that is what they will remember mm. if you ask them after the appointment what was explained to them. So Overmere did a nice study looking at that. And those at the highest risk of chronicity were the ones that were the less likely to hear the biopsychosocial message. And they would really cling on to those sort of biomechanical or anatomical um, um, explanations provided to them. So um, they come with some they want, you're right, they, mm. they, they like the anatomy and the biomechanics and stuff like that. But also it's probably because of us. You know, we educated people towards expecting that from us, whatever profession we're working in. And um, and then when we provide that, they like it, That you know, that they do like it. Uh, and then they really cling onto those sort of information and they like to share that with their uh, practitioners. The problem with that is we know it makes them more at risk of developing chronic symptoms, either pain or disability. And I guess there are lots of different reasons for that. But one of them that to me makes really sense is that we don't deliver information that is useful to them. If we tell them that, you know, their ligament, blah, 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 is, you know, fucked up because of, sorry, whatever, that's not really going to be something they can do much about. And if we can provide them um, much more meaningful information that they can understand, they can reuse whenever they, they are in a painful situation, and they can explain to their you know, uh, friends and family, this is something that really makes sense and can be useful and used versus an information where mm. they are completely disempowered and there's not much information about how they can manage a situation where pain might again come back because mm. if they've been in pain for 30 years, it's very likely that they will have 
other episodes or the episodes are going to keep lasting. But we need to give them tools towards managing that. And asking them what they do expect. And often we presume that patients want, or the evidence suggests that patients have biomechanical, biomedical views and want perhaps biomedical treatment, but often they just want to get better or, or to have less pain or have less function or have better function rather. And so asking patients what they what they are looking for, what they do expect, some of those beliefs will, will come up to the surface and you begin to have a discussion about them rather than just the currently, I think clinicians presume that's what patients want. Don't kind of, are too afraid to ask because they might say something else and then they just go and give them what they're, what they're familiar with. That, that's right. So a very uh, small clinical change I made a few years ago was at the end of my case history to ask patients, what are your expectations for today? And when I did this, I, well, um, again, I heard that somewhere and I thought, oh, that's quite a good idea. It's quite nice and all that. Um, and I didn't expect how much change it would bring to my practice. Just this simple question. Because I, so that was after my uh, prof doc and, you know, I had, I was embracing a BPS approach of patients, blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, I think I was still strongly assuming that patients who were coming to me were expecting manual therapy because I'm an osteopath. I train in manual therapy. In six years of trainings, um, I did, I don't know, I don't know how many hours, but, you know, hundreds, thousands of, you know, hands-on learning techniques and so on. So, and osteopathy is usually defined as a manual therapy. That, mm. That's, you know, it, we use a hands-on techniques and exercises, but, you know, that, that's really the emphasis we give. So I had this strong expectation. And when I started asking patients, so what do you expect from me today? Two-thirds of them don't expect any manual treatment. Mm. And it doesn't mean I don't provide manual treatment because that might, you know, in the discussion, it might come up and they might say, oh, I would really like you to whatever. Um, but what they want is to understand what's wrong, what they can do about it, how long it will take, mm. you know, the sort of usual things that patients expect uh, to get from us. But manual treatment is quite uncommonly mm. uh, mentioned by patients, which to me was very surprising, which I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> An anecdote of mine is on, I think, on one of the, the Facebook groups which i just should stay off of um i think someone asked that question was the, the question that the, the original poster said was something like do you always give treatment in the first session that was it. and by treatment they meant manual therapy it wasn't advice or reassurance right. and people say yes yes you've got to you've got to give manual therapy otherwise you'll just hemorrhage patients you'll lose patients you've got to give manual therapy and i think i said something like you might give manual therapy but you really ask the patient kind of what they're looking for and uh, because if a patient expresses a wish not to have manual therapy because they might well they might say actually i don't really like that i've just come to yeah. you to find out what's wrong and i was a bit worried about you then delivering manual therapy to someone that really doesn't want it it, it it's such a poor start to any relationship and there is like, like you said there's this and i had this i held the same presumption that well i am a manual therapist i can only presume that this person is in my clinic because they also want manual therapy i will give them manual therapy and not bother to ask them you know really what they're looking for and I guess, you know, we can put that in line with consent. It's not because someone is in our treatment room that they consent to treatment. And in, in the same sense, it's not because they're in our treatment room that they consent to a manual treatment. They were just looking for the toilet. They got lost. Yes, exactly. But, you know, regarding manual therapy, I'm not, um, I'm far from being against it because, you know, there's a big trend out there about, you know, we should all be hands off and touching patients is really bad because we, we are um, taking away their sort of um, capacity and uh, self-management and, and and so on in, in dependency, which I always felt a little bit that it was a sort of dodgy argument. And usually what is interesting is that it is made by quite well-informed practitioners who read the literature, 
But what was interesting is that that it's, there was nothing to back it up. This idea that manual therapy was creating dependency of patients on practitioners. I really understand the logic behind it. I get it. But there are usually practitioners or you know academics or whatever who are really strongly evidence informed. But that was probably their own bias, and it wasn't really backed up. And I was really happy when, uh, at the end of last year, there was a study published by a Spanish um, group in pain medicine, I think. Um, and they compared uh, the equivalent of a sort of BPS management with or without uh, manual therapy uh, for the management of chronic low back pain patients. And basically what they found is that both groups uh, had similar results. Um, they had, you know, both improved. There was no statistical difference between the groups. So basically it was as good. So, and just to reiterate, both groups had a biopsychosocial management with or mm. without hands-on. But that, Because until now, most of the comparison was done between strong biomechanical hands-on right, all, compared yeah. with very good BPS hands-off. And it was a bit, you know, comparing apples and pears. And in that study, what I liked was that it was quite a clever design and they really compared apples with apples, mm. one with manual therapy and one without. And they found that it was basically doing the same. So I'm, I'm very happy that, you know, yeah. we can then start discussing around, well, yeah, but what about the cost and so on, which, you know, I'm, I'm not saying then we should be using hands-on on everyone, but at least what we learn from that is that hands-on is not a necessity for every patient, but neither is noxious for patients mm. to use it on them. And I guess then if we go back to patients' preferences, expectations, and informing that to our rationale for treatment, I think that really makes sense. But currently, to my knowledge, and you know, maybe the listeners have um, other uh, data to share, there is no evidence that hands-on uh, creates dependency of patients, even though that would make sense. No, I think it's I think it's anecdotal, isn't it? And it's it probably comes from this perception that patients want the crack and they want the click and to put you know things back in place. And and certainly some do. Some I mean certainly anecdotally, my patients have come to my clinic, you know, really desiring a, a certain type of treatment or manual therapy and it's not dependency and it's you know and you start to get into you think about opioid dependency what, what would i rather be dependent on opioids for back pain or manual therapy i wouldn't want to be dependent on any of them but if i had to <laughs> i think someone's conflating these arguments is or talking yeah. about dependency of manual therapy in the same light of, of dependency to narcotics for back pain um exaggerating and I guess, you know, the, the argument is if we look at the sort of maybe, if I dare say, old-fashioned way of delivering hands-on, which was all about, you know, you need 32 sessions, otherwise you are going to end up in a wheelchair. And, this, you know, I, I get it. You know, yeah, we shouldn't yeah, be doing that. And, you know, if someone is doing that currently, they really have to update their knowledge, take some CPDs, because that's definitely, there is no evidence at all that non-specific low back pain is going to end up anyone to wheelchair. You know, yeah. I've never seen anyone having that. Um, and, you know, there's I haven't read anything in the evidence that, you know, leads to that. So, I, you know, I think we, we have to be really, really um, candid with patients and mm -hmm. say, you know what, what do you have is nonspecific. If it's acute, it's very likely it will get better within six weeks if we don't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that's the sort of message we have to. And I can see that the fear is around, you know, well, yeah, but if I do that, you know, they're not going to come for their fifth session and I'm going to have less income and so on, which I think is, is, a, is a challenge. And I, I really get that. So maybe reliance is a better term. Maybe that's where the argument's coming from, that that 
there there'll be some patients that on screening or just that initial kind of judgment that they're they're very much looking for a passive intervention and i guess the risk comes by being too willing to provide that manual therapy intervention without any conversation around its role and its future role and other things that they can do the problem is that they become reliant to dependence probably the the, the wrong phrase that and it just de-emphasizes the, the self-management, um, more active strategies. And I think that that's very true. But again, it's not like uh, one size fits all. Mm. And I really like the uh, study from the chiropractic profession, I think in Norway. Sorry, one of the Nordic countries. Yeah, it's the Nordic. Here we are, Nordic Maintenance Program, I think it's called. And, you know, they, they looked at um, comparing... Uh, maintenance treatments, either for where it's uh, decided by the practitioner when the patient should come back, or it's the patient coming back when they have a new flare-up. And they looked at cost, number of sessions, and patient outcomes. And when they compared uh, either patient coming whenever they want, or the practitioner decided that, they found that practitioner had, uh, patients already had a very a non-meaningful number of days less of back pain per year. But then they did a very clever thing and they did a secondary analysis and they compared patients who were at high risk of chronicity and patients who were very at low risk of chronicity, like if we use Starback, they didn't use Starback, I think, but something like that, you know, to, to look at the risk of chronicity. And what they found is those who were at very high risk of chronicity were benefiting a lot when practitioners were offering um, the next appointment themselves when they were de- deciding when it would happen. And interestingly, it was the same number of sessions per year. So it didn't increase, but just probably a bit of reassurance knowing I'm going to see my Osteo, Carol, whoever, you know, in six weeks' time or whatever, there's probably a bit of reassurance there that you can imagine. But what was, and I can't remember how many, but it was maybe 30 days less a year that they had of back pain. It was it was really meaningful, you know, it, it was good. Um, but the other group, those who were at the bottom risk, really no risk at all, they had more back pain and they had many more visits per year. So again, I think, you know, and that was using chiropractic, BPS-informed chiropractic care. So, you know, good, good stuff there. Um, but, you know, th- we can't really have the same rule. I always ask patients to come back whenever, or I do this, you know, uh, we, we can't have rules like that, you know, mm. blanket rule that we apply to everyone. It has to really be carefully thought for that patient. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I, yeah, I remember the, 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 the low risk group actually ended up doing worse with... Yeah, yeah. They had more days of, days of back pain. Yeah, the more the more engagement with the therapist, the chiropractor they 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 had, the, the kind of worse they did. Yeah. So we touched on the 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 factors related to resistance, and we said that manual therapy not being a core kind of pillar within practice for some might be quite concerning. So so we said that manual therapy has a role in in a BPS orientated style of practice, but it's a different role. So currently within manual therapy, manual therapy is the core pillar and everything else is kind of dotted around. Whereas what we're saying is that it's it's another tool within a range of interventions or tools that a clinician might draw on. And I think that's correct. And for some that might be quite anxiety provoking because they're like, well, that's like my thing. Manual therapy is the, is the thing I'm good at and it's the thing that I've trained at. And I would tell them then keep using it because I think this idea that we should remove tools from people is a really bad idea unless we had strong evidence that it does more harm than good. And I think currently with manual therapy, we don't have that evidence to back it up. I think the way we explain it, the way we frame it, can make more harm, but it's not manual therapy on its own. So I, I, I do uh, some postgrad training in France, mostly around BPS and so on with practitioners. And, and I think it's much more um, 
effective to provide new tools to practitioners rather than trying to remove some of them because then you become naked you don't know what to do with your patients your usual management doesn't work and what we provide in this training is really learning new tools for them to implement with their patients and we really suggest to keep doing what you're doing but change your language to start with change explanations change you know the education you provide to your patients and then gradually i think you know things will morph and you are going to adapt and you might notice other changes. But I think trying to really become a different practitioner on Monday is not going to happen. I mean, it didn't happen with me. You know, when I started implementing a BPS practice, it was awful. I remember the first patient I spent probably, I don't know, an hour and a half with her uh, because it was my last patient of the day. I had lots of time. I was so, you know, um, happy about doing some 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 form of um, BPS, pen neuroscience education and so on. And um, I thought she probably got it. You know, it was fantastic. And she came back uh, a week or two weeks later, I can't remember. And I said, so how have you been? And, oh, I've been so depressed. All right. Why is that? Well, the fact that, you know, you told me that it's all in my head. I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Okay, let's take a minute and, you know, talk about that. And I think, you know, it, it is challenging. You know, mm-hmm. it's really challenging, changing practice. And there are lots of problems as practitioners for us to be able to do that. We, we mentioned this status quo bias you know it's you know we learn new things oh sounds amazing sounds amazing i'll do that next week you know and but we keep doing what we we know and also um another one that um i I quite like is the current moment bias which is this idea that basically short term is much more meaningful to us than long term so if we know that with our usual treatments patients do get some uh, pain reduction then well that's good enough Mm. in a way so why changing in a way which i can really understand but uh, to me, it's been so. I've been in practice for 12, 13, 14 years, something like that. And um, it, I mean, my practice has changed, you know, hugely in the last, you know, let's say 15 years, mostly because of that, implementing a new model and a model that is not fixed. You know, it's always changing and I'm learning and I'm adapting and bringing new things things out and so on. So I keep changing. And um, I've got very close friends of mine who I train with, and they are quite bored in their practice. They have extremely busy practices. They see 80 or more patients a week. And, you know, it's they make good money. They're happy on that front. But they find that they do exactly the same thing with every patient all the time. And they are a bit bored, which I can understand. I would be bored in that situation. And I guess what is really nice with the biopsychosocial model, having lots of different tools, is that basically you can create, you know, it's really creative. I'm not a creative guy at all. I have no ability to do any creation, but it's something that you can develop, you know, create clinical creativity. Uh, you don't need to be an artist for that. And that, that I think that's really something interesting. So yeah, learning new tools, I think is all about the BPS rather than trying to stop doing stuff. It's really more your manual therapy. If you are a strong manual mm-hmm. therapist, it's still there, but you have lots of other stuff that you can link to and you can adapt. And maybe in some you know months, years, you might see that sometimes you don't need to use manual therapy, or maybe you'll keep using manual therapy mm-hmm. with all your patients, but there'll be other stuff around that will support the patient. And that's the flexibility that traditionally manual therapies, they just do manual therapy and there's there's no flexibility in their, their practice. It's like, well, I just can't do anything else. I can't have a conversation or a meaningful conversation with the patient about their fears or beliefs. So that's I'll just, right. just lie down and do the manual therapy. And um, what, what we're saying is that people can keep hold of the manual therapy and there'll be times when it's totally 
indicated, but having a range of skills and interventions to draw upon to, as you say, to create a kind of bespoke multimodal you know, approach to the patient. Um, there's yeah. two things I want to ask because um, I'm conscious of time, or there's probably more than two. Number one, we're just going to hit it head on. The kind of financial aspect. In the past, manual therapies relied on, or in the present for many, manual therapists presume that you need manual therapy to correct the body and a certain dosage of treatment keeps the body kind of running and functioning and everything in alignment. You've got to keep coming back. And so there's a kind of certain length of time that you've, you, you see patients. The minute you, you move to a more self-management, autonomous, um, empowerment model of, of practice naturally it's going to change that so you're not going to see you're not going to see because your premise has changed you say well i don't need 10 sessions of manipulation you just need one or two or none or whatever it might be what uh, you know what is what, what do you say about that yeah so i think you know this model of uh, maintenance care like you just um defined is something that is really strong in the uk and probably in other countries too but i um train and practice uh, in france and in france we were not doing that at all uh, until recently um, so patients would come to us for an episode of back pain, let's say, and we would see them for X, you know, sessions, usually not very many, you know, two or three maximum because private practice, pretty expensive. So we can't really see them for too long. And then there would be no maintenance treatment at all. Or some osteopaths would say, oh, it's good to do a, a yearly appointment, you know, a, a checkup. And that was it. Uh, so it was pretty good on that point of view, I guess. Um, unfortunately, because the number of schools is really high in France and the number of practitioners very high, so it's difficult for them to have, um, you know, basically enough income. Uh, schools have started in the last I don't know, maybe five, maybe 10 years to start teaching their students that, you know, they should do maintenance on a sort of monthly or bi-monthly appointments for this sort of maintenance, which again, you know, going back to our previous situation, discussion is not something that uh, should be offered to every patient. So in France, we didn't have that model, even though it was biomechanical and so on. We didn't have this sort of, you know, patient coming to an osteopath for the rest of their life. In France, for example, if you were an osteopath that trained some time ago, uh, the financial impact would be very minimal because that's basically mm -hmm. what you're already doing, not seeing your patient often. If your practice is mostly patients who come, you know, every two weeks or every month or every week, and so on. Yes, definitely, that's going to be a huge challenge. But the transition is going to be challenging because basically what you will need is to have a much bigger patient list so that, you know, you can, you know, your patients will come to you whenever they need you and then you'll see others when they need you and so on. So the number in your patient list has to be much higher. But for those who start a practice, I don't think that's really challenging at all. Um, again, because I had this sort of uh, French model of practice, I would say, uh, moving from a biomechanical to a biopsychosocial mm. model to me hasn't been a challenge because I, I was not seeing patients on a regular basis. But I guess you know, it's always this sort of argument, which is not uh, supported by any evidence. So I apologize in advance for that. But the, I, I do think that patients really value the fact that you help them and you care for them. And that's what is also going to increase your word of mouth. So yes, you might see them less, but you might see more people from them because they were happy with what you delivered. So I think that's, it might be a bit tricky initially to to change. But saying that, you know, obviously this uh, podcast is recorded during the uh, lockdown with uh, COVID-19. And lots of manual practitioners have had to embrace hands-off treatment, you know, with video consultations mm. and so on. 
And I think that can be also a fantastic opportunity for them to start seeing that what they, they can do so much and it can be very effective for their patients even without yeah. touching them. And they they have to learn new tools, you know, CBT and motivational interviewing and so on um, to implement with their patients. So maybe, mm. you know, this um, pandemic might help some practitioners to reflect on their practice and to notice other things they can implement. Obviously, I had David on on the show, who's your PhD student at Imperial, and we had, we spoke just about that. That the the, the pandemic is by brute force going to force other skills to the forefront of, of um, manual therapists' uh, clinicians' practice. And I think you're you're also right that patients value high quality care, and and any loss, I suppose, in in finances from not seeing a patient you know twenty five times, but seeing them three times. Patients will recognize, A, that hopefully their outcomes are better, but their cost outcomes are better. It'll be cheaper. And then recommendations and word of mouth flow from that. It's the karma theory of manual therapy. So, Joe, what would you say to clinicians listening or perhaps aren't listening, but their friends are listening, um, that I suppose there's different categories. There are people who are ready to change uh, and move towards a BPS approach. There are those which are right in the middle of their journey and which are, there are those which are thinking, I'm just not interested. It's all a bit psychological for me. I'm a manual therapist through and through. I've done, you know, X, Y, and Z course in anatomy and biomechanics. This is the way forward. So what would you say to particularly the ones which are really quite ambivalent or resistant to it? Yeah, I I would once again, I really sympathize with them. I've done those courses. I've trained in anatomy and biomechanics and so on. I've done all of that. Um and I understand the um the appeal, how it's quite appealing, all, all of that. I would suggest uh, to try a couple of things in their practice. You know, um, tomorrow, and if they see a patient, uh, which is maybe uh, in a video consultation, yeah. just to um, use, for example, some simple motivational interviewing uh, techniques during their cases. Sorry, so using open-ended questions, trying not to use uh, closed-ended questions, which is really hard to do because we we've been, you know, do you have pain at night or during the day, sort of thing. So really trying to get an idea about their story and how it feels and what might be their fears and concerns and stuff like that. Um, and um, doing some reflective listening with them, you know, trying to repeat what the patient said. It really helps us to understand if we got that right or not, and it allows the patient to correct us. And doing a bit of a summary at the end and really highlights the gap. So I think, you know, there are great training in motivational interviewing. You can do online for free, but that, you know, if you were using that, there's also another thing called affirmation, but I would put that aside at this mm. moment. And using ALLS um, as an acronym for um for that in their case story could be very interesting for them. And another thing is there's another acronym, sorry, two acronyms uh, called ACT UP, which is about trying to get um, an idea and exploring the patient's um, context. So ACT UP, the A is for activity, C is for coping, how they're coping with their symptoms, T is for thinking, what are their thoughts about their problem, Use about upset. Are they upset? And how you know how? What are what is their mood with mm -hmm. their symptoms? And P is the people, people around them. What do they think about that? What do they do for you? And all of that. Mm -hmm. And if you can ask a few questions around, you know, act up using alls, it can give you just a bit of a perception yeah. of where the patient is in their context to see what may be the the sort of most useful mm -hmm. thing you can tell them to provide a bit of support. And just that. Don't try to change any of your management. Just do a bit of that together. Mm -hmm. And it might help you to 
provide a bit more reassurance to your patient. You might notice that they need a bit more education about something mm -hmm. specific. I think it might highlight some of that. So all and act up, try that and see how that goes. And it doesn't need to take half an hour. I mean, it doesn't need to be a psychotherapy session. It can. It's just a few open questions focused around you know, certain certain things, which you can do. You know, assuming people's treat um, continue to do manual therapy before the manual therapy, maybe during the manual therapy, even after the manual therapy, when you you know you're going to get you've gotten changed and you're sitting at the desk with them. But in a way, I think initially, just you just have that conversation. In a way, it doesn't matter how or where but just begin to ask those sorts of questions and begin to focus their their minds towards these other things so you said that when you were teaching clinicians in france that they should continue to do what they do so don't radically change their their treatment assuming they're doing manual therapies they're going to call intervention but change the language and communication around that maybe just say a bit about that how 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 should the communication language change around these these interventions yeah. Before I answer that question, I think one thing that I think is quite important is also to have a support group or peers that you can discuss with. So when we do this training in France, then we have a group close to just those delegates for two months when we provide some support, some discussion around cases they've just had in their clinic. And so we really provide some form of peer support, you know, to really help to support that transition to change. Because otherwise, I think it's very uh, easy to see, yeah, it looks great, but I don't know how to do it. I'm not going to do it. So I think we need the support. So whatever sort of um, uh, training you do, you might want to you know, hook with some of the other delegates and create a little WhatsApp group or whatever to have that, that form of support. Around communication, there are different aspects we uh, talk about. We talk about words. Um, so not, we don't say that words, there are words that should be banned and shouldn't be used, but just to be mindful about which words we're using and for whom we're using them. If we use very diagnostic and anatomical language, is it to reassure ourselves about what we think and it's really our reasoning that we are voicing out loud? Or is it to demonstrate that we have some knowledge and to demonstrate that to the patient? But is that information really usable to the patient? Mm -hmm. So what sort of words should we be using? What words do the patient to use and can we use the same one then we talk about the sort of usual stuff around imagery and that it has poor correlation with pain um we do lots of training around motivational interviewing and how we can really elicit concerns fears um and expectations from patients uh with that and then we uh, we around communication we also do workshops on how to explain things mm. to patients. So we have some uh, case scenarios and they read the case scenario and then they work uh, mm. in groups of three to try to explain. And it's really a big, usually a huge car crash mm. for everyone. Mm. And it's good to be doing that in this setting because it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, it, it's just a, a colleague in front of them. It's not a patient. So they're not going to ruin anyone's life doing that. And then they become much more fluent with that mm. language and explanations. And then they can, what we advise is for them on Monday to start out with a very non-risky patient so the sort of bottom risk on like the start back so even if they completely you know do that wrong it doesn't matter yeah. and for those very very risky patients of chronic pain chronic disability to keep managing them as they used to initially and once they start becoming much more comfortable with those tools then they can start implementing them for a bit more challenging a bit more challenging having a bit more time with those patients and so on so we we sort of you know provide some form of um, framework and guidance on how to implement change because it is challenging yeah. for anyone 
And sometimes it's not a case of saying things differently, but just not saying things. So, so I, I can't remember. It was one of the San Diego pain summits. I think Peter Sullivan finished with, um, even if you think it, don't tell them. Even if you believe it, don't say it, or something like that. So even if you do have some very far-fetched biomechanical beliefs or theories or mechanisms around the treatment or the manual therapy, just don't say it. I mean, just say give a, a, you know either just don't mention those those ideas and give a much a blander explanation to clinical findings or the technique but you know reeling off this biomechanical kind of fairy tale about why someone's got back pain and going to deep anatomical explanations often with good intention often it's good intention to to really try and help and inform the patient but how valuable is that to that patient in terms of them beginning to take control of their I completely agree. And I'm just going to use another anecdotal uh, thing. Um, when I left uh, my practice in Paris, um, so a colleague of mine um, uh, took my list and um, she's seeing most of the patients I used to see um, and, and, and more, obviously. But, but some of them um, wanted to see a male practitioner. So I referred uh, those ones to uh, a colleague of mine who I teach with in Paris. And a few months ago, he contacted me because a patient came to see him and he said, oh yeah, I used to see Jerry who was amazing and I had this back pain. I haven't had back pain for years, but uh, my back pain was due to my ileocecal valve and he worked on my valve and you know now I've been fine. And so he, my colleague is extremely uh, biopsychosocial too. And Obviously, I saw that patient, you know, I don't know, mm. 10 or so years ago, uh, which, and I was much more biomechanical and stuff like that. And it was great to to hear that, mm. to hear that, you know, that to me, I, I, it really highlighted the journey yeah. I, yeah. I had in the last 10 years. And I guess that's normal and we all change and we're going to see things about our practice that we now feel, oh God, I'm glad I stopped doing it. And that's fine. Practice does change. There's no, it's yeah. not like, you know, it, it, people are right people are wrong it's just that we are trying to move towards where the evidence is taking us but yeah that was a, a good reminder of what i used to do looking at old case history notes is like looking at old photographs of oneself you know yeah. with the bad hair and the and the bad yeah. clothes you know, oh my god how do i wear that or how do i look like that and i've you know and even me just thinking back some of the things i used to do kind of almost routinely looking at leg length discrepancy you know just and just yeah. being infatuated with whether or not one tibia appeared to be you know, yeah. half a centimeter higher and then was delighted to find if it was uneven. And I could then communicate that to the patient because it would, I, I guess you're always looking, trying, you, you, it came from a place of, I want this, I want to understand why this person's in pain. I really genuinely want to know what's going on with this back pain. But if all you've, if all you've got in terms of your kind of cognitive library is just a load of kind of anatomical pictures, then that's all you've got to explain. You've just got yeah. because of that, your leg length and the foot and the, all this kind of stuff. And so, um, so it's about just it developing, a, a different or a much broader kind of conceptual library and, and kind of knowledge base to be able to explain things, things differently. Yeah, completely. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ali, for having me. It was great. It was good discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain.